Hello, and welcome to another episode of Determination, Deliberation, and Dragons. In today's episode, Izzy and I interviewed a very special guest, Professor Nick Rakiotis from Framingham State University. He's a professor, or rather he was a professor of Russian history, he's retired now, and although he hasn't written any fantasy novels, he is an incredibly skilled writer and... I know a lot of his poetry very well. He is my uncle, and he shared poems with me before and my family, and we all love his writing. We love his storytelling sensibilities and capabilities, and I'm just so excited to have him on the podcast and for this opportunity to learn from him about writing and to share that all with you. So without further ado, let's jump into this. I'm Nick Rashotis, Nicholas S. Rashiotis. I'm 75 years old. I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1947. I went, grew up in Brighton, Massachusetts, went to the Boston Public Schools from 1953 to 1965. I was visually impaired, so I went through the Boston Public Schools in a special program, but we were also among the early generation that was mainstreamed. Have my undergraduate degree in history from Brandeis, where I studied Russian history with the late Daniel R. Field and Marshall Schatz. I decided that I wanted to be a historian of Russia. I went to Boston College, where Dr. Raymond T. McNally, the late Raymond T. McNally, was my thesis director. I taught at Boston College in various capacities from 1972 to 1978. From Framingham State, it went to Framingham State and taught for 35 years there. I was the chairman of the history department and faculty fellow to the academic vice president. And I'm also a research associate of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard. I'm married for 51 years to my wife, Pat, and we spend our time in Boston and on Cape Cod. I've written widely in the fields of Russian history and other fields as well. I'm a published poet. And I belong to a writing group where we write in all sorts of genre called the 57 Readers here in Brighton, where we present two public readings a year. So that's it in a nutshell. (laughs) Awesome. And our second intro question, what is your favorite story? And we wanted to leave this open. It can be in any sort of medium that you you want book movie show play poem i think probably the two russian classics tolstoy's war and peace 
and Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov are probably my two favorite and most inspirational works. Awesome. I finish that one. <laughs> I tried. Yeah, me neither. But um... sometimes you have to grow into a book, and sometimes you outgrow a book. So, you know, it may not be good for you now, but we I have a policy that my classic books that I like the most, you know, Moby Dick and various others, I try to reread them about every 25 years to see what has happened to my perspective. Wow. Well, considering I am 25, it'll be a while (laughs) before I'll reread them. (laughs) Or it's about time to reread them. (laughs) So our third intro question is our, our kind of more fun one. So how would you train a dragon? I love this question. First of all, I would try to check his ancestry to see if he has any fire breathers among his ancestors. Then I would try to see what his temperament is like. I'd show him pictures of St. George or St. Demetrius who were famous dragon slayers and see how he reacted. I might show him a picture of Vlad the Impaler because Vlad the Impaler, Count Dracula's Dracul, that's dragon in Romanian. And then I try to calm him down with Peter Paul and Mary's Puff the Magic Dragon or the songs that are out within the past 20 years by the rock group Imagine Dragons. And I'd know that he was tamed if he let me brush his teeth. And then I would reward him. You may not know this, but dragons love banana cream pie. So that would be his reward. I haven't heard of that one. Gotta... <laughs> Does that come from anywhere specific? Or... Yeah, I made it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new fact for the dragon book. I'm sure it's true, though. And then um, we're also just curious, you know, what does storytelling mean to you and why why do you write? Well, in our family, we were always storytellers. My mother read to us in Greek when we were kids. I have two brothers and she had improvised on the fly versions of the Greek myths and stories from the Bible that she made age appropriate. And then growing up in this neighborhood and growing up in our family, we were were always storytellers. Everybody loved a good story. So I, there was never a time when we weren't telling stories and there was never, I was thinking about this. There was never a time when I wasn't writing. When I first learned to write, I turned our grammar school teacher around, I think, as I think of it now, she must have been blushing, because my very first poem was probably at seven years old when I just learned how to spell and and write cursive. And I think I wrote something like, the boat is in the water, the sky is very blue, I will catch some fishies and bring them home to you, or something like that, you know. So... We we were always telling stories, we were always uh, writing, and we were always valuing the narrative. 
if you couldn't tell a good story, especially around the lunch table from the time we were in junior high school all the way up until uh, as a faculty member at Framingham, our, our table, the high table for low people, as we called it, was a table that was filled with storytellers. And as far as writing, I've always written and I've always wanted to write. And uh, if I didn't, I suppose my head would explode. I have a editorial piece in the Boston Globe today. And my wife, Pat, said, why did you do this? And I said, well, if I didn't do it, I'd be thinking about it all the time. So there's always something in the works. Awesome. I really love how you describe storytelling. And I mean, maybe we should have said this at the start, but so Nick is my uncle. And in our family, I never really thought of our family as being storytellers, but I think how I imagine storytelling has changed a lot. And definitely, I mean, over the time, the last three weeks I've spent with my Yaya, you know, she is very much a storyteller. And I think everyone else in the family is, you know, loves telling stories. And that's how we really talk with one another. So I, I think your description of that is really beautiful. Imagine your uncle Greg, if he weren't able to tell a humorous story, he wouldn't have anything to say at all. So it's what we do. We entertain each other. Absolutely. Not sure what life would be like without Greg telling <laughs> stories. You know, the garage would be a lot cleaner out at my Aya's house. <laughs> but, um, moving on, though. So, I, I mean, usually we interview people who have written fantasy or science fiction books, and you're, you're more in the academic kind of area of writing. But I'm so curious, could you tell us like a little bit about the types of books that you've read? And are there like any fantasy or science fiction books that you would recommend that you really love? Okay. Well, well, I'm, I'm a historian. So I've written with colleagues on the Massachusetts constitution and I've written um, the diplomatic history of um, 20th century Europe with my then boss, Joseph Harrington. The book is called Masters of War, Makers of Peace. And then my own work um, on Russian religious history, um, The Thorny Path to Sainthood, Filaret Drazdov, 1782 to 1867. A lot of scholarly articles. But very early, I, I, I was thinking about this, very early in my um, career, I never published it, but I wrote a fantasy where what had happened is the knowledge of the world was rewritten as the brain waves that would acquire it, the neurons that would, the, the neuron impulses that would acquire it. So instead of being educated, you would put on this ring with a nod to Wagner and you would know anything you wanted. So instead of the world being digitized, the world was electrified so that you'd never have to struggle through war and peace. You just put on this ring and you would know it already. So that was my first excursion into fantasy. And when and with the writers group, we write 
we we write certain fantasies. We imagine a first date or we imagine one of our favorite nights or something like that. So there's lots of and there's lots of fantasy in the in the poetry that I write because I write poetry oftentimes as impersonation. I put myself in the person or in the mind of someone or I react to something that's been said or something that I wrote and I something that I read and I say to myself oh this is I can spin this out and when I was younger I had a rock band and we wrote music and of course that's fantasy not fantasy and science fiction but a lot of it is you know fantasy and fanciful so I've been all over the place when it comes to that. Yeah, that's so cool. I am really fascinated by the idea of wearing just a ring and then discovering the secret or unlocking whatever it is in human nature that gets us towards peace just by wearing a ring like that. Um, This was before I read Lord of the Rings, by the way. Oh. I didn't know anything about Lord of the Rings. I knew Wagner's ring cycle and the the power that the ring would give to anybody who wore it but then i wrote this and then my friend jeremy who who um i went to school with who used to read to me um then he said oh we have to read lord of the rings we simply must so we did <laughs> <laughs> yeah it makes me think um well the sort of like utopian idea makes me think of some ursula le guin that i've read And one book that we talked about way earlier in the podcast um, that she wrote called The Dispossessed, which is about this group of people that live on a moon that there's this capitalist planet that the moon kind of revolves around. And this group of anarchists decide to settle the moon and leave this capitalism and form their own sort of utopian society, which is not entirely successful as the subtitle says which is uh, the dispossessed uh, an ambiguous utopia so even the title lets you know there's something going on here yeah i know it i've read that oh a a couple of years ago see every now and then i'm really an omnivorous reader so for for example uh, with 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 um, Peter's grandmother, sometimes she's surprised because I I have no idea what they think of what one's reading choices are. But if I see something now, for example, I'm fascinated by the books by uh, um, Tchaikovsky, a modern writer. I don't know if you know her stuff, but it's 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 very very good. I think it's a she, but you know there there are always like so many of us, I keep two or three books going at the same time to the point where sometimes I can't remember the title and the author, but I get, you know, I'm, I'm into it. So if I see, let's say, my very, if, if, if among my top 10 of fantasy and science uh, fiction books are the, the Winter's Tale, I think it's Halprin, this wonderful fantasy about New York in an imaginary winter time, and I think my very favorite book, um, and it might be uh, Zelazny's, but I'm not sure if he's the author. It's called The Stars My Destination. It's an 
excellent, excellent book. And it it is about a man who has the power to jaunt. In other words, he can travel from one place to another just by an act of um, mental exertion. But he is, and th- this is way back in our heritage, he is the Karagyozi. He is the eternal clown. Hmm. Yeah, there you go. Alfred Bester, thank you. <laughs> well worth it. And by eternal clown, you mean um, not like trickster clown, but sort of a, um, like more on the mirthful side? It's no, um, it's just so clever that I don't even want to cheat it by trying to describe it. It's not that long. And and he is a force for good, and he has been disfigured by having a clown face tattooed onto himself. So he has to deal with that when he gets angry; it comes out. But he is this—he's he, this transcendent force for not not mirth, but I would say for righteousness, I guess. But he has to deal with it. He has to figure out that that is what he's about. Interesting. There's a little ritual that he recites through the whole book. I'm going back now about 60 years. I'm doing the best I can here. Something (laughs) like Gully Foyle is my name. Terra is my nation. Something, something, something. And the stars, my destination. That's a little ritual that he recites all through the book. So when we do season three, three years from now, after I finish law school, we'll uh, we'll put this book on the list. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm excited to read it. I found it on my on my audiobook app as we were talking. So I'll take a look. Um, kind of going off of this this idea of some of your favorite books and stories. This question was inspired by one of the things that you and I had talked about when I originally asked you. But if you were and this is kind of a, uh, I tried making this fun. If you were the captain of a ship tasked with taking an author around the world in order for them to write their next book, which author would you want to take on your ship? So someone who you find interesting and someone who you think would be good company. I don't know that good company would be my criterion, but someone that I think I would like to see either learn the lessons that one might learn from seeing the great wide world or delivering um, lessons to the great wide world. I, I'm not thinking so much, let's say, of a contemporary author or even one um, of the past three centuries. I, I think I might like to travel with, let's say, the Buddha or with St. Paul or... Um, someone, someone like that who had a huge influence on our civilization or, or maybe even, you know, one of the Chinese, um, sages and be able to, to, to be with that person, you know, Lao Tzu or whoever it happened to be, Confuzu and watch them watching the world or listening to them talking about what it was that they saw. Because to me, a really important part of writing 
and a, and a really important part of thinking is not only you know reading omnivorously and not only writing all the time you know as much as you can but it's also listening 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 to people's speech patterns listening to the way that they apprehend the world listening to the way that they define wisdom imagine what it would be like to um have one of these cosmically significant figures go to a part of the world that they've never seen before and interpret it right in front of you and talk about what message they might be able to bring wherever it would happen to be you know and it and it needn't be that they were going to you know talk to people in sub-sahara africa it might be that you were traveling with them and they were going to new york city or to LA, or to Beijing, or to Mumbai, you know, or Moskva, it doesn't matter. But just to hear the way they understand the world in light of how they thought, that would fascinate me. It, it, and it really, it, it could be Plato, it could be Aristotle. I picked religious figures. I know some people I wouldn't like to travel with <laughs> to do this, but, these great humanistic figures. I think I'd love to do that. I think that's incredibly interesting. And definitely something like, I know a lot of things that I read. I mean, now I'm getting more into, um, as I'm preparing for law school, like I've been reading about Supreme Court justices and a lot of what they do is interpret like, oh, how would the people who wrote the constitution or the, the or the specific law in question, like interpret you know, our modern times and situation. And I think that's always an interesting, I don't know, thought process and and trying to imagine that. And it would be even more interesting with some of the people that you're talking about too, I think. Yeah, because one of the things that goes on and we see it, let's say, in scriptural interpretation and certainly whenever you have a document like the Constitution, the reason that it's so significant is that we know what it says. We can't argue about what words are there. The words are there. But the question is, A, what was meant by the people who wrote those words? And then the obviously the attendant question, it's that we might call it the exegetic and the homiletic problem. What do they what do they mean now? What what endures? And there really isn't any way. If, if, if John Adams were walking the streets of Boston today, or, or John Hancock or Thomas Jefferson, they, <laughs> they, they'd be saying, you know, really? These buildings, these cars, this population? But wait, who should really be in the body politic? The question remains the same, but the, the social context, the terms of existence change. Yeah. And thinking about, you know, Plato and, you know, everyone who wrote the Bible and the Buddha, that that would be so fascinating. And I'm curious. So I, I guess now living authors um, or authors who have been alive in your lifetime, have you met any authors of books that you've enjoyed? And, you know, what were those experiences like? What have you learned from some of those other writers? Only the guys who taught me, who were so prolific. Um, the the man 
with whom I studied, wrote on serfdom, and my current project is on the Russian Orthodox Church in serfdom. So um, Daniel Field was very influential on on me in his work on serfdom. Now has come back to have a place in what I'm currently working on. But I, I, I never moved in the circles, let's say, where I would meet somebody like, oh, I don't know, Richard Ford or um, any of the great women writers, you know, I haven't met, you know, Ozick or Joyce Carol Oates or a, any of these people. The, the only... I love reading detective fiction, by the way, as well, because that's really fantasy fiction. I did meet George Pelicanos once, who's written a lot of, um, you, you may know him because he wrote a lot of The Wire, the, the, the show on, um, might have been on HBO. Uh, but he wrote some detective fiction that's set in DC. And I love, reading detective fiction which from the time I was a little boy, you know, Sherlock Holmes and then later Dorothy L. Sayers and um Rex Stout. But but I haven't really I haven't really met anyone I mean I've met several poets who are published, but I, it's not a circle that I really that I really move in. I'm not sitting at the Algonquin round table or anything like that. Um it's mostly people in the scholarly community that I've met and, and, and admired and people who've been very helpful, by the way. This, this it, it's wonderful when you meet people like Christine Warabek, um, who's a, a very fine Russian historian and a tremendous person who, you, you know, read my work and helped me, um, strengthen it. So one of the great things about being an academic is that we edit for one another. I've I've edited for poets who've won, you know, coached poets who've been published and um workshopped some of their stuff and they've been award winners. And that's that's just part of the collaborative nature of writing, at least as I understand it. I'm not in that world where it might be competitive at all. I've always thought of academic writing as having some sort of competitive element to it, at least in the fact of before you get tenure, you're expected to publish a certain amount. And then when you get tenure, you're sort of safe. But to build up your career, you're sort of expected to produce a certain amount of literature, or academic studies. Oh, sure. And th- but there, you may be competing with other people who are submitting to journals, let's say, but you're mostly competing with yourself. And one of the reasons why, let's say, you as an undergraduate might want to study with somebody who publishes is one of the reasons is that when you get a recommendation from that person, chances are that the people who are reviewing your application may know who that person is and know the quality of their work. And from there, they assume the quality of their pedagogy. That connection is sometimes a viable one and sometimes not. Mm-hmm. But the but the other reason why we like to see people publish, and believe me, even when you have tenure, um, you you do want to keep writing because that's what you do. I mean, that's, you know, as we 
I'm going to interrupt myself and tell you a story. See, I told you we were storytellers. <laughs> there, there was a man named Paul West who was on the Boston School Committee. And I used to sail at a place called the Community Boat Club here in Boston. And when I was first at, at, at Brandeis, I met Mr. West. And he said, oh, Russian, you know, my grandfather met Leo Tolstoy. He traveled through Russia and he met Tolstoy. This was a, a real Boston Brahmin, this fellow. And uh, he went to Tolstoy and he said, you know, I want to be a writer. And Tolstoy said, really? He said, yes, I want to be a writer. I want to go back to the United States and, and write. And Tolstoy said, well, will you die tomorrow if you don't write? And Mr. West said, well, of course not. And Tolstoy said, well, then you'll never be a writer. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the reason I tell you the story is that sometimes the frustration of, of for people of balancing family and teaching and writing is that the competitive nature that one has with oneself as one is trying to balance these things and be true to all of them, you want to be a really good teacher. And to be a really good teacher, you want to be bringing the latest and the greatest to the classroom. And you wouldn't know what those things are if you weren't abreast of your field, let's say, and and weren't committed to it, weren't committed to advancing it. And at the same time, you know, you, you, your biggest thing, obviously, is to be is to be good to your family and meet those obligations and there are it's it's a real balancing act and that's why so many academic marriages probably fail because it's just an impossible thing to what, what's the good book say no man can serve two masters right so <laughs> you know you you you're balancing and you're also emotionally vested in the work. And this is one of the things that we try to tell young people. Everyone's going to get rejection slips. But you have to keep in mind that what's being rejected is your work, not you. There's a very famous book that won a National Book Award called The Confederacy of Dunces. It was written by a man named John Kennedy Toole. It's a marvelous, marvelous book. He killed himself because it couldn't be published. His mother took it everywhere. No one liked it. And Walker Percy down at, I think, LSU, Louisiana State University, said, this is a work of genius. He got it put out by the Louisiana State University Press. It won the National Book Award. It was all the rage, let's say, 40 years ago. But Mr. Toole, who had many probably personal issues, he, he, he couldn't separate himself from the work. Dislike my work, well, you, you, you're disliking me, and I've given it everything I have. That can certainly be difficult to learn how to grow from criticism, sort of not shrink from it. Yeah, and, and if you're open-minded about, it's a hard thing to explain. Sometimes when you write something, you say, oh, this is it. This is definitely a sweet spot. I, I, I got it. There is no way that this thing can't find an audience. It is just so good. And then someone looks at it and they say, 
well, you know, your character development is a little flimsy here. You, you, you don't have good pace in the book. Uh, and that's why people have editors. That, that mm-hmm. there, there's so much that goes. It, it, I like reading the, um, acknowledgement page of people's books. And in this, in this market, the way things are now, there's 35 people there. And they're not all, you know, the people that made my sandwiches on a rainy day. I mean, these are people who read it, lived with it, struggled with it, because it's, it really is a commitment. It, 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 it really is all consuming and it's, and it's addictive as, as you may know already. It's, it's, it's addictive to be able to, to tell a good story, to fashion a good line, to write a good verse, to, Pull something out of yourself. And then when you get to that stage where you're really trying to have it be refereed, that's when the least pleasant part of all of this goes on because everybody has their paw prints on it. You know, they're, <laughs> it's like making a sculpture and other people are taking a chisel and saying, well, you know, this nose could be a little. I, would have... I was just wondering. With all the writing that you've done, what are some of the joys you've found in writing or also you could say in reading since they're very connected? I think what probably has happened to me is that I'm a lyrical writer. So I have to discipline myself when writing nonfiction to be lyrical, but not at the expense of the analysis and the the synthetic thinking. So that's a challenge, but it's also the, the, the joy of it. What, one of the, you know, I am a hoarder, <laughs> but what I hoard are people's speech. And what I hoard are, are various images. So I might be on the beach, let's say. And, you know, everybody else is reading. I'm eavesdropping. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm catching the dialogue wherever I can find it. And every now and then somebody will turn a a phrase. I mean, if if I showed you the hundreds of poems that I've written... You would, you would see sometimes the title of a poem is a, is a phrase, something from ordinary speech, let's say. And in the getting titles for my works, my articles and my books, getting titles for them, I want the reader to know that what they're going to be reading has a, has a lyrical component. It's as well read and as well paced as I can make it. And, I don't write on really exciting stuff. I mean, people are not knocking down the door to read about 19th century Russian theology, let's say. All right. But for me, the joy of it is, is to make that interesting. And part of that joy came from teaching. Because when you, I always thought of, of lecturing as, it, in a way, it's stand up. But it's not stand-up comedy, it's stand-up rhetoric. So you have to convince your audience that the subject that you're talking about is worth their attention. And at the same time, you don't want to lose them. So one of the challenges for me is 
I never write for an audience, e- even an academic audience. Because if you say, especially in a, in an article, if you say, oh, I'm going to send this to such and such a journal because this is the sort of stuff that they publish, you're lost. Because you have no idea who the referee is. And it might be somebody who says, I don't want to see another article that's the sort of stuff that we publish, you know. So, <laughs> so it, it's just, it's just fun. And if you see it that way, if it's, if it's a joyous enterprise, one of my frustrations was before I retired, I was simply too, too fatigued at the end of the day to write as much as I wanted to. You know, after, after, I know it may, this may sound, you know, um, self-serving, but after a day of teaching and administering, there really isn't that much left. You can read, but if you write, it's like Penelope's Tapestry. You know, you look at mm-hmm. it in the morning the next day and you'll go, oh, I, did I really do this? <laughs> so now in the past, let's say, 10 years since I've been retired, I look at my pension as a kind of a patronage. So now I have the leisure and the interest, and I hope the maturity, to do a lot of the writing that had been dammed up all these all these years. That's where the commitment now was possible, because there's more of the day to fill up than there ever was before. So from, let's say, 8 o'clock in the morning to 11.30, that's my prime writing time. And from one to four in the afternoon, that's my prime reading and editing time. And I take my nights off usually because, you know, I was away from, from Pat a lot of my working life. And now that we're, you know, old and gray and full of years and nodding by the fire, <laughs> now <laughs> it's time to spend a little quality time, even if it's watching television or yelling at sports on TV or something like that. <laughs> The description of just your writing as as lyrical just reminded me of this one author who I really loved. We we read her book for an environmental class, and then she came to to Vassar to speak with us, and she ended up approaching me because my final project in that class was kind of similar to what she had written about. But she was her name is Elizabeth Rush, and she. I guess went to college to learn how to, she wanted to become a poet. So she was telling me how she was trained in like poetry. And then I guess she just couldn't make it as a poet to the degree that she wanted. So she became a journalist and then she ended up writing. I think she's written a few books, but the book that we read was called rising dispatches from the new American shore, um, you know, about sea level rise and how cities Mm -hmm. and people Mm -hmm. respond to it. And she was just describing it, you know, as this idea of being creative, creative nonfiction. So she's approaching the story, you know, as as a journalist, as someone who's following the facts and the stories and the people. But her writing style, she wanted to keep, even though she's not primarily a poet as her, that's not her career, she wanted the writing style to be very poetic. And I feel like that comes across in the book. So your your just description of your writing in your nonfiction as being like that just reminded me of her. Highly recommend this book. Also, she's just such a lovely person. 
So just I'll wanted to shout her that. out. And and you know, in a in a similar vein, uh if you've ever read Annie Dillard's stuff, a pilgrim at Tinker's Creek mm-hmm. and some things that she's done on on, on Cape Cod on wetlands, she's she's another one. She just soars uh, as does and I'm really sorry I'm blanking on this name, but there was um a wonderful Canadian writer who wrote about the trees out in Vancouver in the big forests and how they communicate with 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 one another. I could I could look it up for you, but you could probably find it a lot faster than I. And it just just marvelous writing about nature that's you know, in the great tradition of John Muir and and so many of these great nature writers who, who who tell you the science, but they do it in such a lovely way that it, it's just irresistible, really. Absolutely. And I kind of, I mean, loosely based off of that, my next question was going to be, so I, as you know, I wrote my law school essay about Harry Potter and how fantasy novels influenced my decision to apply to law school. You know, whether that was the right topic to write about or not, I don't know. But I'm always so curious as as an academic, as a professor, has any of your interest in fictional literature or storytelling influenced like what you've chosen to research? Has it influenced your your work as a professor at all? I think, oh, inevitably, sure. And and it started very early. When when I was really young, around the nine years old, I couldn't read print anymore. So I started reading talking books, you know, listening to what they call talking books at the time. They were recorded books that were on 33 and a third records, excuse me. And there was a book by Lloyd C. Douglas called The Robe. They made a pretty terrible movie of it, which is about about the crucifixion. I read that when I was very young. I read Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment when I was very young, and I read um, Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire when I was very young. I was reading books that were probably too old for me, but two things happened there. They made me really curious, and Curious about about so many things, and they also because they were oral. I had to be careful because uh, one of the tricks you may find this as well. One of the challenges is your internal voice is a lot smarter than what comes back at you on the page. So I used to tell people as a joke there was a wonderful narrator of talking books named Alexander Scorby who was a great actor and a great um narrator the talking book awards narrators awards are named for him and when I first started writing one of my problems was I was hearing my texts in his voice and they were way better than what was on the page and I had to you know disabuse myself of that <laughs> internal voice so for example, if you go to Word Gathering, which is a site at Syracuse University, W-O-R-D-G-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-G, all one word, Diane, lovely, lovely lady who runs the site, 
I have, I don't know, a half a dozen poems there. And she always says to me, why don't you record them for us? They, they, they're in print and they are also recorded. And my response to her is that it only works if I can hear it in somebody's voice and it comes close to the eternal, the, the internal voice, then I know it's, it's working. But I mean, books that, I mean, books that shaped my life, there are, there are so many. Um, I mean, the greatest work of fantasy, as far as I'm concerned, that, that we all draw on is the Quixote. Cervantes is Don Quixote. I love that book. Greatest work of literature that so few people have read. I loved Milton's Paradise Lost. I reread that about every every 25 years. I love Joyce's Ulysses. I reread that about every 25 years. And I love the comedy of S.J. Perlman, who wrote for The New Yorker. I love the wordplay. Really, there, there, there have been so many. And War and Peace, I've, I've, I've read War and Peace three times. Moby Dick, I love Moby Dick. My brother Basil and I, we go at each other over Moby Dick all the time. And that's, and that's the other thing that there's so much sharing. You know, when there's, there's a wonderful book. Um, I think it's the greatest modern American novel called Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, who wrote it here, right, right in my neighborhood. And um, it's a big book, and it's a complicated book, but it's probably the greatest American novel, at least in my opinion. And I went after my brother Basil, and I said, "You got to read this because he's 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 setting a scene. This is where we played. This is where we ate. These are the stores we knew, and yet." This is a very complicated book. One of the plots is there is a movie called Infinite Jest. And if you watch it, you'll starve to death because you can't get away from it. It's so powerful. And it's, it's a, it's a big book. And my brother Basil said, I know you wouldn't approve of this, but I read the book. I read the thousands of footnotes. And I have to tell you that when I finished it, I spiked it like a football. I was so happy to get through it, but you know, <laughs> There, there really, I, I may be straying from the subject a little bit, but there were, there were so many books that, that influenced me. And once I got, I love to write humor. And so once I was reading Gogol and Ilf, the 12 chairs, um, and reading Dead Souls and, you know, reading some, some Russian humor and reading, uh, James Thurber and Stephen Leacock, the great Canadian humorist. I, 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 I love writing comedy. Uh, and, and of course you can't do it. You know, you can't do it as a, a as an academic, but you can do it as a, as, as a poet that th- you can certainly look at the words world sideways and share a laugh with people. This is a kind of a long winded answer to <laughs> what you asked. <laughs> I think it's perfect. I think it's pushing me to go back and try to try to read Don Quixote. I have it on my bookshelf. We definitely have a copy somewhere. My dad is a book hoarder. We might have multiple copies. Yeah, I started reading it in like twelfth grade. I'm just I, I don't like classics that much, so I, I struggle to to read like the first couple chapters. But I need to. Uh, I'll revisit it. 
You go back now and read it, especially part one, where the barber and the priest are deciding as to which books harm Don Quixote's psyche. And then you read about the governor of Florida. You'll be rolling on the floor laughing. It's so funny because they're deciding which books are all right to keep and which books he shouldn't be exposed to as they try to return him to sanity. It's just precious, really. I mean, you connect it to modern politics. I'm I'm way more interested now. <laughs> so, <laughs> Izzy, you have our last question. Yeah, I was thinking to just close it out, if you might have any advice for aspiring writers, um, what would you say to them? I think I, I all through this we've been talking. I'm not really qualified because I'm not really that successful at all. But I I would say this first: write, just write and write and write and write, and read and read and read and read, and talk and talk and talk and talk and listen and listen and listen and listen. And never lose the joy of it. Because one of the great things about writing is it's like palingenesis. Every time you open up a new file for a new title, you're born again. You have you have another shot. You know, some people say, they used to say the blank page. Now we say the blank screen, right? When, when, peop, when, when people say to me, well, what do you actually do when you write? And I look at it this way. Think of it as sculpture. Don't, don't, don't think of it just necessarily as write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite because that's what you do. But think, but think of what a sculptor does. You, you, you have the blank page. It's a block of marble. You have your vocabulary, your style, your influences, your aspirations, the tricks of your trade. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got that chisel of your creative mind and you're carving something out of that sculpture. And with every rewrite, it's getting more and more polished. With every rewrite, it's getting more and more compelling. And honestly, I, I know it's there's a discipline to this. Some people, you know, not everybody is Jack Kerouac, just sits at the typewriter with a roll of paper and writes on the road with very little editing. People are more like one of my heroes, uh, Jorge Luis Borges, the great Argentine writer, who, um, very, very weak-sighted, but he, he, he wrote with a, with a pen, and he would write and write and write and write, and when he got to the right sentence, he'd skip a line. So his amanuensis would say, oh, well, all I have to do is to look for the lines above the white spaces. That's what he really intends. So in a, in a way, two things are going on. And this is where your patience and your discipline and your craft come in. Eight rewrites. It's not a bad thing. 30 rewrites. I mean, Tolstoy wrote War and Peace. Well, poor Mrs. Tolstoy had to copy it over. I think seven or eight times all the way through because you will see stuff. And to me, that's fun. That's, I, that's the sculpture, right? That's the, Ooh, you know, I, I can do better with that smile. I can do something better with that nose. I, I can some, do something better with that expression. Let me take out my chisel 
and sculpt this piece. And I will, I will send, um, Peter an example of what I meant because my brother did a piece of sculpture for V magazine and my poem on Pygmalion and, Ga- and Galatea is published through this, the piece of sculpture. And I'll send it to, to Peter to, you know, when we finish. And I think you'll understand what I mean. That's interesting. Certainly a different way to think about writing for me. Well, it's it's what works for me. And th- that's why I hesitate, because everybody finds their own bliss in this. You know, some people suffer like Tom, Tom Wolf, or some people suffer like Dostoevsky to, to, to write. For some people, it's suffering. For some people, it's joy. You know, you, you, you find your own metier. You know, you find your own way of, of, of approaching this. And if it works, then, you know, that's, that's what you, that's what you go with. And where you guys love fantasy, the, the the beauty of it that is you make up your own rules in a way you create your own utopia or dystopia it's very challenging to do this and make it compelling because you're asking people to share your fantasy and that's that's we all do that right whenever we write fiction we all do that and even when we write history we all do that i'm trying to when I write a history book, I'm trying to get people to empathize. I want them to know who I'm writing about. They may not like the person, but I want them to know the person. And when you write, you know, fantasy, it's wonderful because not only I said a piece of marble, you guys can make it whatever you want. <laughs> and But that's challenging. That's quite demanding as well. That's why good fantasy is is. It really is so much fun to read, but I, I am sorry. I never could do Harry Potter. I just couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you'll educate me and maybe in 25 years, I'll grow into Harry Potter. <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> That's right. I'm open-minded. I'm not dismissive of it. I'm certainly open-minded. But the great thing about it is it, m- many of my students learned to read for fun by reading Harry Potter. And if and if that's what it takes, that's a, a a marvelous, marvelous thing to happen. And she's a marvelous person. That I can tell you. Leave you with this story that when when Harry Potter came out, we we went to I was on the board of directors, we went to Rowling and we said, you know, we we want to produce the book. And she said, you know what? If you provide the security properly, we're going to fix it so that the Braille readers of the world are going to get the book the same time the print readers do, which never happens. So when the release was, it was midnight on a Saturday. I can't remember. It was because it was, you know, you guys probably know the story even better than I do of when the first book was released. No, no. They carry, they released it in London. And they carried the Braille books to a group that was sitting down here on St. Stephen's Street. So for the first time in history, really, the kids got a shot at a fantasy book at the exact time that everybody else did. And it's because of her and her, you know, um, cast of characters who wanted that to happen. Oh, that's incredible. I did not know that. 
But that's really, that's all we have for you, Uncle Nick. Well, that's great. It was an honor and a pleasure for me. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Absolutely. I was so thrilled to have you on. I was going to keep this as a surprise for my parents because they actually do listen, but I found out my dad was aware. (laughs) Not (laughs) a secret then. I don't know if my mom is, but I'll, I I told my dad, if she isn't, don't tell her. (laughs) 